The first cut, cut, the first cut, the first cut, cut, first, the first, first cut, cut, cut. Hey folks, this week on In the Cut podcast, um, you, if you are interested, take a listen to my interview with Lisa Zeno Churgan. Um, when we were in LA, we had the privilege of sitting down with her. She's the editor on some pretty amazing films. Um, Gattaca is actually one of my top five, I would say. Pretty, pretty awesome. And if you've ever taken a film course in your life, I'm sure they've talked about this. Um, as well as The Cider House Rules, Dead Man Walking, and Reality Bites, My Sharona. Amazing. Um, yeah, she was pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, take a listen or watch our interview on crafttruck.com. I'll just teach you simple cuts to start with. Look at still cameras yeah. that are no movie cameras. You're like, <laughs> like, where's the big rig? But the guy that designed it's the same guy that designed iMovie, and iMovie is a horrible interface. I mean, it, I never bothered I, to learn it. Yeah, it would. It, you shouldn't ever have to. I, <laughs> I always found Final Cut more intuitive than iMovie. Mm-hmm. Even though yeah. iMovie has gotten better with later editions, uh-huh. but Final Cut X and everybody hated it because it completely shifted what everybody was used to working with, and it lacked 90% of the features that 7 had and that the pros need. Right. But they've been since building it back in, mm-hmm. and it's it's better than what it was. It's still not mm-hmm. yet, but I'll be interested to see, because Apple's let their pro market go Right. And, but the rumors are there is a new tower coming, there is a new, so... Oh. I'll be curious to see what they do. Mm-hmm. And how they're going to make people risk trying it again when it was such a disaster. Well, that's why uh, Premiere, I guess, has kind of tried to go after that market. And then we average users just stick without it. Yeah, <laughs> tried and true. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, um, so we're gonna do the intro afterwards. Okay, just, I've seen it. I've seen it done that way, and it makes so much more sense. And then, and then we're not strangers. Oh, okay, it's like, my friend Lisa. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, I wanted to start off talking about music. Actually, I love um, the Canadian. Old <laughs> 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 we were rocking out to some beats earlier when we were waiting for you to come. So uh-huh. it's uh, music gets you really, really pumped up, and I think that. Um, uh, the use of music in, with um, choices that you've made in such movies as 200 Cigarettes and Reality Bites, um, for me at least, was amazing. It made those two films like one my, or my top ten in my top mm-hmm. ten for sure. <laughs> um, and I was just wondering how much control did you have over what songs went where or what they needed or... Cause they wouldn't be the same without, those films would not be the same without um, the music. Um, Reality Bites actually was a group effort yeah. um, because we were, uh, there were certain songs like obviously My Sharona um, that were built in, uh, you know, real good, real classics and things that um, Ben had wanted to use from the very beginning. But the, um, the rally underneath the, opening credits when they're at the top of the building. That was, we were at the 11th hour and my assistant, Gina Blyer, came, she was like, what about that rally song? You just wanted something that had propulsion and really, right, and wasn't going to get in the way. And she had that idea. It was just a supposedly a temp title and the uh, temp music track. And then, of course, what happened is that everybody fell in love with it. And, um, 
then the there was a song the composer um, we and I can't actually remember but my another assistant Nina she came up with this uh, it's when the montage of when he's kind of sleeping Ethan Hawke is sleeping around and um, leaving the girl and not taking her running number. out the back door yeah. and throwing um, her number and, away. Uh, and we had a song there and the composer basically like copied it. <laughs> you know, it's um, and it's unfortunately working. if uh, it was quite a while ago and I can't remember <laughs> I can't remember the song that she picked but um, we had uh, and then um, another assistant of mine John Spence was you know we all just kind of like what could we use here that was really a group effort yeah. now the thing is big montage songs um, are generally picked out beforehand because uh, it's something that the filmmaker is thinking about, and they want—they don't want to get attached to a song that they're not going to be able to afford, yeah. um, because things are so expensive. Uh, Moonlight Mile uh, was um, a case in point. They picked out uh, Brad Silverling picked out a lot of those songs beforehand because he just really it's that temp love thing that happens and with it represents directors. what he's trying to say with the film and right especially in a movie like Moonlight Mile where it was about uh, you know death and forgiveness and moving on and things like that you know. and that's what a song really emotes so that's probably why yes yeah. or pure joy like my Sharona or uh, you know I mean it's just um, and you know all those incredible songs in Pitch Perfect. Obviously, yeah. they were all the songs that they danced to. I mean, those were well thought out beforehand and arranged differently. Like uh, the Rihanna song, "Please Don't Stop the Music." I thought it sounded better in Pitch Perfect than in than the actual yeah. song. <laughs> oh man, what's, what's the world coming to? Um, I just wanted to go back to. Uh, 200 cigarettes for a minute. It's probably maybe one of my top like three. I'm not even kidding you. It's like mind blowing. I have it in SD. I have it in HD. I have it on a hard drive. I have it on a USB stick. I give it to my friends. I'm like, lend this to you. You need to watch this movie. Um, and the same thing happens every time I convince somebody to watch it. How have I never heard of this movie before? How, how are all of these amazing actors in this film and they're all you know, so entertaining, and the music is so great, and how have I never heard of this before? And I was like, well, you got it now, better late than never. Um, the opening uh, to that film, I Want Candy, was like perfect for the opening titles, mm -hmm. and it just pumps you up, and it sets up for uh, exactly what the film's going to be, so back to the music thing. Um, well, again, that was, uh, um, that particular movie, I came in after um, uh, it had gone through a pass and then they brought it to me and so a lot of that music actually was already was in the uh, and that would have been Risa the director Risa Bremen Garcia yeah um, again because she was uh, it, that was a situation also where you had so much music and unfortunately the financial considerations you can't get everything that you want so a lot of times um, the directors really dig down deep to get things that somehow kind of miss the boat and they can give it a new life and reintroduce it to a new generation. Well, yeah, because the film set in 1981. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, 
so you can Obviously really just go nuts with anything like in the early 80s. Right, right. Which is like the best decade ever. Well, it's amazing. <laughs> the, um, you know, this film that I just worked on, uh, they you know they use 80s inspired things it obviously has served as a touchstone for um filmmakers and music and musicians and um my mother always says everything comes around <laughs> oh and the 80s aren't going anywhere i'm mm-hmm. pretty sure i mean <laughs> we can be thankful for i mean there wouldn't be hipsters mm-hmm. today without the 80s so uh-huh. you know it's, they're giving back yeah my um, mother uses the example of platform shoes when they were uh, when they oh, were yeah. in style in the '40s, she was like, "This is really disgusting." And then they came back in the '60s. They came back in the '80s. They came back in 2000. You know, it's like people putting a goldfish in there. there. <laughs> they keep re- <laughs> they keep reappearing. So <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, no, I had to mention it two minutes ago. It's because I'm just like, "This is." Uh-huh. Nice. I have to go back and watch it. I haven't seen it in a very long time. Gosh, Although you know, it is on cable a lot. It's one of those movies that's on cable a lot. Well, the lineup is like insane. It is. It is. That's um, and the. I think part of the reason why it didn't have as much popularity at the time is because there was so much talking. There's just you know, it's like non-stop. The height of. Uh, um, although it introduced um, Kate Hudson to us. Yeah. We hadn't seen her before. And she's a total spaz. Yeah. And amazing and endearing. Great physical comedy. Great physical comedy. Yeah, that's. Uh, she was very slapstick, and I don't know how she pulled it off. Mm-hmm, it I great. know and she looked like a complete disaster by the end, and then yes, you're like, I still love you. You're uh-huh. amazing, I and know. she gets the guy, and she's covered in dog shit. Casey Affleck. <laughs> she gets Casey Affleck. It it's is Casey message. Affleck, right? Yes, Casey yes. Affleck. that's. <laughs> <laughs> he got more screen time than his big brother Ben, and I'm like, oh, this is uh-huh. a first. That's awesome. Uh huh. Cool, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I will go. I have to go back and watch it. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, you were mentioning how you came in to kind of tighten that film up at the end. Um, how how often does that happen where someone calls on you and says, you know, we've got a great thing going here, but we really need someone with the trained eye and expertise to come in and just make it fly, make it work? Um, um, is that like... Uh, I mean, there's some people, it happens a fair amount, or, I mean, every, like, every couple years or something like that, whether or not it's something that I take over after it's been totally put together or partly put together, or somebody sometimes uh, in certain situations they want me to start from the absolute beginning and not even look at the original cut, and that's always sort of interesting, because you know the original cut is there somewhere, so every once in a while you go and take a peek at it and go, well, this is actually good, and then, no, this is, I think I can do better. Um, So it's always, I always think that that's actually the best kind of film school is take a set of dailies and give it to five different editors and see the way that they would, each one would put put it together. And you'll get potentially five different stories with five different tones. Um, Potentially, it depends. It depends on how the eye of the director, because if the director is really clear in the shooting about what he or she wants... There's not too much open for interpretation. um, You'll often do it. Somebody was saying that uh, uh, they were talking about David Fincher, who is actually known for shooting like lots and lots of film, but he has been using the same editor for a long time, Angus Wall, who's absolutely amazing, and so the two obviously are in sync, um, but it doesn't just create itself. It's uh, so, 
it's no, it's I, a collaboration. Uh, I think that specifically editing is, and I'm really biased maybe, but is the most important part of the storytelling because that's ex- exactly what you're saying. Um, a director can shoot the hell out of everything um, knowing that all the right pieces are in there and they just need someone to, with the magic to come and line it all up mm-hmm. in a perfect, cohesive way. And um, Hoping <laughs> yeah. all the right pieces, all the right pieces. are there. Um, it's, it's, I think it's the most important part. I'm saying it out loud and I don't care. I <laughs> no. think that editing is where the storytelling happens. Because it's the final rewrite. That's actually what it is. It's the final rewrite. To see it's if the, what was intended is actually working or something better, and that's when it comes on to someone like you to say, you know, do you? How often does it happen where you speak up and you say, well, "Let's move this scene and put that at the beginning," or is there any big shifts like that? Oh, that all happen? the time. Yeah. Basically, they pay me for my opinion. That's you know. Best job ever. <laughs> <laughs> you guys want to know what I think? <laughs> and they're all like, yeah. Uh, well, I've never really been quite one to keep my mouth shut and those kinds of things. Also, you're so, you become so intimate with the project. It becomes your baby. Each one becomes your child. And so it's a question of you want to protect it. You want to take care of it. You want to protect the actors from themselves. Each actor, especially young actors, have bad mannerisms. You want to, Even older actors, you want to make sure that those don't appear in the film over and over and over again because, you know, because people, a lot of times if they're untrained, they're not as comfortable in their skins as, you know, as someone who has been in front of the camera for a long time. Okay. They know how to be still. That's a very hard thing to be able to do. Um, and uh, it's a process for them as much as for anybody else. So, you know, part of your job as an editor, as I say, is to protect the actor from doing the same mannerism over and over again. A couple of times you can do it because then it's, it becomes part of their character, but you don't want it to define them and what they're doing all the time. Um, could you apply what you just said to Cider House Rules? Oh, God, not to that, because those were, you know, I mean, Michael Caine is as, he was doing an accent for the first time. Oh, I don't know that he's ever done that. And it was kind of interesting. Lasse Hallstrom, the director, who is Swedish, at times he would have more of an issue with Michael's accent than I did, uh, you know, being American. He was just so sensitive. Did he say that properly? So we did a certain amount of dialogue. playing with, you know, taking a word from another take and sticking it into his mouth so that the accent was even better. But no, I mean, you had actors who were incredibly experienced, and uh, Charlize Theron at that time was probably the least experienced out of all of them. Yeah. And uh, you had Paul Rudd, uh, Tobey Maguire. The thing that was very interesting about Cider House was um, from just the dailies, the uh, Miramax was concerned that they weren't getting enough from Toby's performance just seeing the dailies. And he was actually having people say to him, you need to give more. You need, we need to see more of it on screen. And then the, from the very first time, the producer 
saw it put together, he actually turned to me and said, where did you find this stuff? We it never like, saw this with the Daily. Right. Well, the thing is, is but that they it's, did. It's, it's not in context, though. Yes, but also finding those moments, finding those small things. His performance was very subtle, but I loved it. And at the end of each week, Lassa, I would give Lassa a cut of everything that I had done that week. And so Lassa was able to tell while they were shooting that it was everything was fine because he was seeing the material cut together. But I also actually had a difficult time at the beginning. I was um, I was in New York and they were off on location in Massachusetts and Vermont and uh, various other places in New England. And I really wasn't having any contact with anybody. So I was cutting in a vacuum. I was going to dailies with my apprentice. <laughs> we would walk up and watch dailies by ourselves in the screening room and then go back and I'd sit and cut and I was I actually remember saying to somebody, I'm really not sure what this movie is about. And then when I started putting it together in reels, because you know you cut things out of continuity, then when I started putting things together in reels and started watching it through in a linear fashion, I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, where did this come from? And I had been part of putting it together, but I hadn't been able to see it. The the thing that gets me about that film is if you if you just look at what what the shot list was and what is the context of what's happening, it's so disturbing um, with, you know, at one point you see Kieran Culkin digging a grave and he's mm -hmm. just like, 11 or something right and you know um going out with um the thing a pot of human uh, waste and mm -hmm. putting it in the fire pit and it's kind of just accepted and the more that these scenes are built up the more you know you, you realize that's just how it is and that it's not even necessarily sad because there's some spin on it and michael Caine just brings this um positivity and hope to like pretty desperate setups well, that you're seeing on screen. You're like, how am I still feeling hope after all of this? Uh, it's about a lot of different things. It's about family. What is the definition of family? Uh, Dr. Larch is Homer's father as much as anybody is, even yeah. though he's not a blood, you know, he's not blood. And so it brings into... Um, question what constitutes a family, all these kids taking care of each other uh, along with the staff, um, obviously the issue of abortion. Homer is against abortion at the beginning because uh, it's like if Dr. Larch had given his mother an abortion, he would not be there. But it's a question of choice. He chooses to give Rose Rose an abortion by the end because he, it has become a human question of what's best for this person. I am incredibly pro-choice and the humanity element of it is so uh, resonates incredibly um, because of the choices that people make in life. Did Dr. Larch choose to kill himself at the end or was it an accident? Okay, I'm, sort of a, I'm glad you asked that because I was like, did I miss something? I wasn't really sure. I don't know that. Um, I don't okay know that John Irving open. wants to yeah. wants you to know definitively. Oh, you get to was he so sad that his son had left? You know, Homer, his son, 
was everything over for him. I probably choose to think of it more as an accident because I, I think he was full of... Well, obviously, there was a tremendous sadness in him if he needed to do the ether as much as he did. Yeah. So. But then there's also that juxtaposition with Mr. Rose, who, again, his death is kind of questionable as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, maybe it was, he stabbed himself, but his daughter stabbed him, but... No, it, he stabbed himself. Yeah, okay. He, that, 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 you know, there's no question about that. Yeah. The, you know, understanding that he drove his daughter to do what she did because of what he did to her and obviously i wouldn't you know i can't imagine it ever being okay to sleep with your child um you know force yourself on your child but so i can't i can't give any kind of justification for that it happened um i guess in one way you could say he was being honorable by doing what he did, yeah. but or else it was the realization of what, of what he had done to her was just something that he really could not live with himself at that point. I also liked um, or live without her live because without of her. how much he loved her. I like the moments they shared um, in the convertible car in the drive-in. Oh. And there's never anything on the screen. Mm-hmm. It's like wartime, and there's no electricity. Uh-huh. And they they keep going there to have these bonding moments uh-huh. in front of just a blank screen. Mm-hmm. And it's like the story's happening all around them, so it's like they don't need any more drama mm-hmm. anyway. But I thought that was really um, interesting that a lot of the development of that relationship happened there. Well, his imagination was you know having only seen one movie, <laughs> <laughs> and he can bring it to mind and recreate it and talk about how amazing it is. And King Kong. Yes, is pretty King amazing. Kong. Um, <laughs> yeah. Even when it breaks uh, in the middle of viewing. Um, yeah. And her never having seen, never having met anybody like him. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I can tell that you're really passionate about this film and that's probably why you were nominated for the Oscar for it. Um, it seems like you dove right in, and it's it's an amazing film. I love it. Um, Thank you. It's a big favorite of mine. Definitely. And mm-hmm. why, maybe I don't, I just don't know, but why do you, I think the title means, like, because you're wondering why it's called that, Satter House Rules. And then it, you finally see the rules, and you're right. seeing, mm-hmm. and the other workers there, the migrant workers, don't know what it says. They can't read it. And then when he finally does read it, it's not a big deal. And they think it's this set of rules that, you know, they're they're against, but they don't even know what it is. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, maybe I you have to come up with your own set of rules by which to live. And some people did it successfully in that movie, and some people did not do it successfully. Um, and do we need a set of rules by which to live? That's yeah. um, oh, and John Irving spent ten years writing that screenplay. He lost a very major character who was in the book, a character named Melanie. And um, when I when I got the job, I started reading the book, and by the by the time Homer was actually brought back to, ended up back at the orphanage, he had been adopted five times, where in the movie it's just 
twice, twice. I think, something yeah. like that. And I got through just a very beginning part of the book, and I said, you know what? I'm not going to read this book because I think that I should be the only person working on the movie who has not read the book, mm-hmm. and I can relate to it just as the movie, just not thinking about what the book is. And... Um, and I was all set to do that, but then there was a play that was actually being produced in um, in Los Angeles, and I ended up going to see it because my fatherhood is back and my mom needed somebody to go with. And so I saw the eight-hour production, and I saw all these characters that were not in the script, and I was like, oh, my goodness. But John Irving was actually really good about, let's just throw the movie, the book out. Let's focus on what it is. He, almost more than anybody... He was really um, determined to make it stand on its own. And he did. Wow. Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> cool, cool. Um, <laughs> sorry, just going to look at my notes here. And the book went on for like another 20, 30 years after the... Pardon? <clears throat> and the book continued on for like another 20, 30 years after the... Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying like to... one of my favorite authors. Oh, yeah. Um, The uh, producer, Richard Gladstein, gave each of us the key uh, heads of departments. He went around collecting first editions of the book and had um, John Irving sign them. And it says, to Lisa Churgan, editor for the great film that we are about to make. (laughs) I was like, oh, God, nothing but a lot of... (laughs) A little pressure. A little pressure. This is going to happen. It's going to be you. What I loved about the movie was they did cut out the major character, and they cut out about thirty years of extra story. Mm -hmm. But the film itself still has the same emotions and same contextual feel as reading the book. It's like one of those few Mm -hmm. translations that is. A complete success. Right. Like, I love the movie as much as I love the movie. Yeah, that, and that's highly unusual. Oddly enough, people felt, a lot of people felt the same way about House of Sand and Fog. There are a lot of people who liked the book, which was difficult, <laughs> yeah. really liked the movie. It's one of those other uh, things that I've worked on where we had that. Because they, when you do a preview screening, you hear those opinions all the time. So, I just have one more question about Cyrus rules. Um, there is a bunch of buzz on the internet that that one scene with Charlize and she's laying on the bed in her Marilyn Monroe, yeah, <laughs> her, her Marilyn Monroe. Pose. Sprawled out. I mean, yes. we all sleep like that, yes. right? Oh, yes. And in a cold cabin. <laughs> oh, yeah, but yeah. in the moonlight. In the middle of the winter, hey. right. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Can you imagine what I that's like heat. for a female to be looking at that absolutely perfect perfect body. <laughs> well, that's my question. There's this buzz that it wasn't her body. Oh my god, it totally was her body. There we go. Absolutely. Like, Why would oh anyone even god. say that? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here. Oh my god. Oh my Ain't god. nothing but the truth. It's oh, her body. <laughs> no, no. It is okay. totally, totally her body. Okay, she cool. is drop-dead gorgeous yeah. and has a perfect body. And there's no need for a body double. No. No, there we no. go. I mean, we didn't have the ability in those days to, like, put a different head on. uh, You know what I mean? You can do that now, 
but that's like Charlize. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's totally her. Charlize. Okay, good, good. Mm-hmm. I was hoping. I was like, oh, she's yeah. Mm-hmm. She's perfect. We're mm-hmm. just gonna leave it at that. Um, I wanted to talk to you about another one of my favorites. Um, Gattaca. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh man, I was so excited when I was in film school because this is one of the top films that my professor was super excited about showing us. Oh yeah? Um, just everything about the aesthetic and the story is, it's, it's a new idea for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of the godchild versus, you know, science stepping in and, and optimizing what, um, what isn't perfect. Um, and it was around the time that there was, um, you know, baby in a bottle being talked about and the sheep embryo being created and uh-huh. all of that. So um, it was really, really exciting at the time just with what was kind of going on in society and people understanding that there was this shift with science. and um, All of which has happened, though, in terms of being able to... I know, how that far was Dolly. Off are we? That was Dolly the... You can recreate dogs. You can. Uh, the thing that was kind of interesting, though, is that was the first time we actually saw Jude Law mm-hmm. as an actor, or at least, I mean, in terms of the United States. Uh, obviously, he had worked in uh, in okay. England before then. Um, and there was one little kind of mismatch. He actually ended up dramatically being the most flamboyant. Of them, and he was the most perfect genetically, so he should have been the most monotone character. But um, but he was, uh, and Ethan's character should have been more emotional, and Unruly, Uma's yeah. should have been in the middle because she wasn't quite because she had a couple of defects. <laughs> so it was. Um, but he had to be as passionate as he was Jude's character to, I actually forget everybody's names. Jerome. Oh, Jerome, Amazing. right. Mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I was visiting a friend and their child was having a biology quiz about Gattaca. They teach it in biology classes. Mm-hmm. Film, biology. Degenerate, borrowed ladder, you know, the whole thing. They, uh, because it's to keep people interested, in, you know, when they're studying genetics and things like that. They, you know, when you start to learn about that stuff, it's something that they show in biology class today. Oh, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Pop culture, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think that the Ethan Hawke character and the Jude Law character, their connection kind of takes the spotlight over anybody else's relationship in the film. I feel like you're most invested in what's going to happen with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how can it, how could it end well with those two? Um, and it obviously doesn't, but, um, well, well, maybe it does. Maybe you know it's what supposed I mean? to end like that. Right. Because the, uh, Ethan's character gets to follow his dream and Jude's character can't, Accept and live the way that he that he is. That said, at the at the end, when you see um, you know the cuts between you know Ethan living his dream and then Jude Law looking up into the sky, mm-hmm. the actual cut of the wheelchair in front of the incinerator uh-huh. and then just the metal inside is so fast that you almost don't 
even know what happened. So what, you know, like, cause I actually had to like pull it back and I was like, wait, what just happened here? Was that him? Was that, it's funny because. Was it he killing himself? Yeah. Yes. And you don't need, Definitely. it's just showing you don't need a lot of time. You don't need that, that cut to be long and a lot of screen time to get a concept across. It's mm-hmm. almost more effective. Um, because it's just very quick. Like he just, he already made the decision mm-hmm. before he even met Vincent that, that he didn't huh. want to live. So I have to go back and watch it again. Yeah. Huh? Cause yeah. So you're, you're sure watching him in the spaceship and then it's like, he's looking up and you're thinking, okay, he's happy for him. <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's just the incinerator. And then you're like, wait a minute. What uh-huh. just happened here? Uh-huh. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I thought that was, that was interesting. You didn't uh-huh. need to have this big spectacle. No. Sometimes something that's just the nuance alone is what makes you feel. Well, I mean, the old saying, less is more. Yeah. Pictures speak louder than words. I, uh, my mentor, Carol Littleton, I, she used to say that, and it's true. Pictures speak louder than words. If you, can do it in a, if you can do it by a nonverbal way of doing it, it's much more effective than all that exposition of people saying, can we make this idiot proof oh, so that everybody can connect the dots? Yes, you've done a good job. You've laid all the breadcrumbs, the story. People can follow it. So, And that's what... But I'll have to go back to look at Gattaca and see... If we did, <laughs> did we make it idiot proof? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what does that make mean? I'm just kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> just because I had to rewind it one time doesn't well, you mean. <laughs> you know, the thing is, it's you know, the thing is, when you're working on a film, you actually sometimes forget that a first-time viewer is is so invested in a certain story they're following something and then if you take a left-hand turn and show something else that you really might not have given it enough time um and that's that's why actually previews work even though they're painful to put your baby out in front of strangers who sit there and critique it yeah um it you learn a tremendous amount from it so something that you may have thought cut together explains a situation right it may just not be communicating properly correct mm-hmm. correct uh-huh. um there's a lot of um green imagery when things are going crazy in Gattaca like the light turns green or there's this uh. type of um glow happening when things are out of control and the camera starts shaking and you know when they're running away from the club and mm-hmm. such like that um one of those scenes that I really love is when I think they're back at her house and you see the waves coming in from the ocean, which is a big theme in the film as well. Uh He's always by the ocean. Right. But it's upside down. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And then it comes in and they're, you know, they're having a good time there and but it's completely upside down, Sear. So I know. Is that I had well, oh, totally. The that director had decided. The director and the DP um, Swavik, who was European, had no need to explain things the way Americans like to have things explained. Um, and his use of color, he uh, worked on those films. Uh, I think it was red and. Blue. I don't know whether or not um, uh, with a French filmmaker. So he was. Uh, he brought that use of uh, really concentrated colors 
and obviously the director, Andrew Nichol, chose that specifically because of Suavik's past experience. And yes, the upside down thing, I had, I definitely had difficulty with it because, you know, the logical mind, it's like, why are we upside down? You haven't seen it before? You hadn't. I didn't understand. I really didn't understand what was the true motivation for it. And it was really, I think, more just of wanting to do something different visually. And they did. (laughs) Yeah. The, you know, everything from the, the sets to the costumes to... You know, the way that the camera's moving is so precise and everything yes. is so clean and industrial looking and, and restrained. Septic. Everything and then, is very restrained. So when there's the moment where they're breaking the rules and, and mm-hmm. being illegal or whatever, yes. it's that's mm-hmm. when kind of everything goes crazy. Her hair's flying uh-huh. and the camera's shaking as they're running and there's this crazy green light and it's so I think it's it's cool because it's almost necessary. It's almost mm-hmm. like another film happening. Well, it totally worked then for you, which is great. That's exactly what the you know what he wanted. The uh, the image of the rockets um, taking off every day into the mm-hmm. sky. Yes, as well is, mm-hmm. is something that I always remember about that film. Uh huh. Kind of representing, you know, his dream that he doesn't right. know if he can attain and. Mm-hmm. Right, Ernest Borgnine knowing who he is. Oh. So the truth is actually there. You know, he was a janitor. The janitor knows that he's really trying to change his life and willing to let him do it. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Ooh, we're gonna go into the the intense discussion of dead man walking. Ah, oh, dead man walking. Oh. <laughs> oh man! There's a new movie now called Dead Man Down, or you know, I mean, it's. Uh, but not the same thing. Just, oh no 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 okay. no 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 no. There is. They apparently say that. So, Dead Man Walking is actually based on a true story. Correct. Sister Helen Prejean was a, um, the, I can't, I actually, the, I'm forgetting the name. It's a very specific term when somebody chooses to have sort of a, a confidant, a confessor, when they have been convicted and sentenced to death and need to have somebody need, want to have somebody to talk to. And so it was based on her experience of two different people. I think her book was based on two people. And um, I think that was also Tim Robbins' almost debut as a director as well. Bob Roberts, which I had also done with him, was uh, was his first movie. Bob Roberts was actually... Um, a, an innovator in that it was all handheld, and this was 1992, and um, it was before there was a lot of handheld things. We crossed the line, we you know, broke the rules, and um, and it was a musical. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. And so then um, Dead Men Walking was his first sort of very traditional film. And for a, well, for a first-time traditional filmmaker, um, 
he got a lot of praise for it. It was just amazing and what he had the actors emote. Um, well, he had two, I call them thoroughbreds or Arabians. You know, a lot of actors are, um, you've got your, your actors who learn their part, they practice it in front of the mirror and they'll give you the same performance over and over and over again. And then you have your Sean Penn, Susan Sarandon, Dustin Hoffman, um, people, Michael Caine, people that I've had the, uh, Ben Kingsley, I've had the opportunity to work with. They'll give you something different. So um, in the eight takes that they did for the confession scene in Dead Man Walking, there were different levels of intensity and they were like anemones. They were, there's a dance that they do and um, I think that in that particular situation we actually shot A and B camera which, uh, because you're going to have somebody giving so much and an actor receiving and giving back you really need to have the temperature of the performance be the same and Sean Penn in that confession scene he cried like in take two and three and then was probably a little spent and then maybe once more towards the end and that's you have two thoroughbreds doing a dance together that's awesome Um, there's uh, something I read about the end credits of the film uh, it reminds me. This film was edited on old-fashioned oh machines. Oh, that was so funny. <laughs> I didn't know he was doing that. We were probably on the dub stage, and we had cut in the end credits, and we're watching them, and, of course, I burst into laughter. He was... Uh, because this was uh, 95, I think, and it was when a lot of people were starting to work electronically. I, by the way, went to high school with the person who invented the Avid. Bill Warner. Mm-hmm. He won a Scientific Academy Award for oh, it. Wow. Yeah. Could you tell <laughs> back then that he was destined for it? Uh, he was one of those uh, AV people in high school, and um, I was the editor of the yearbook. He was the photographer. So he was interested in photography, and it somehow... That's a story. He, you know, When video cameras became inexpensive he bought one of those editing systems that was all linear, and he said, this is really silly, and being an MIT graduate, he decided to invent something that made it much better, <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and now you have him to thank, and you need I him do. <laughs> Amazing. Uh-huh. Um, we digress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it was edited on, uh, on a chem. Um, I worked on a chem People, a lot of older people uh, worked on moviolas. I did work on a moviola a few times, but uh, why was mostly it, worked on a Why do you think it was necessary for him to put that in the credits? Um, <laughs> because was it, it a joke was, I think I might have <laughs> wanted him at the beginning. I was like, Tim, let's work, you know, let's do work on the Avid or something like that. And he didn't want to. So oh, okay. he was, uh, he, it was his last, and actually the next film that he worked on, uh, Cradle Will Rock, he also did work um, on film. And then Tim and I did something called Embedded, which was, um, uh, he wrote a play about the 
journalists embedded with troops in Iraq, and um, he filmed it, and I worked with him on that, and we did work on the Abbott on that one. Oh, so that was go. actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. So but, he has moved on. But unfortunately, he hasn't directed another project. You never know. Again. You may be getting a call. Soon. I hope. Mm-hmm. So with um, your reference to you in high school working in the yearbook, that's kind of where, <laughs> why you ended up being an editor, I would think. No, no. Uh, I was an English major in college, really? and I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. And then I... Um, I was living in New York my junior year. I went to NYU, and um, my brother-in-law, who was at the film school, used my apartment to make a film. And I was exposed for the first time what, how it was done. And I was like, oh, this seems really interesting, the behind-the-scenes thing, because my sister was an actress, and I knew that that was not anything that appealed to me. And But once I started seeing people do kind of the nuts and bolts of it behind the camera, I became interested. And um, when I graduated, I had a job in a documentary company. I was a secretary, and the only thing that they had there were editing rooms, because obviously you go out to film, but they put it together there. And so it didn't work well for me in one sense, because I spent a lot of time in the editing room, and for that I got fired. (laughs) But I had just qualified for unemployment. (laughs) I had my 20 weeks. So uh, I then used that and started just doing what most people have to do. You have to volunteer your services so that you gain the skills so that you can then finally get paid for it. And that's what I did. Yeah, you can't just read a textbook to learn how to tell a story. Well, yes. And the thing is, obviously, in today's world, there's very hands-on. But the thing is, it depends on what you want to do, because there is that real apprenticeship period that you have to go through. And working in an editing room, especially in those days when there was so much film, it's very, uh, it's like working in a library, because you've got all this film you've got to take care of, you've got to log, you've got to um, put it into its proper place, you've got to keep track of it, reconstitute film, you know, there were true physical skills that you had to develop, splicing, rewinding, you know, people were very concerned, it was so funny, it was a, have you ever worked on 35 millimeter film? Well, 35 millimeter film is actually pretty hard to tear, you know, it's like 16 millimeter is much more difficult (laughs) to work on because it's, you know, you've got these tiny things, Um, so uh, it was being given the opportunity to gain the skills so that I could then get my first job, which was the Warriors. With regard to what you were saying about um, being scared about breaking film and such, mm-hmm. I've heard um, you know, some editors have horror stories when they find out either footage has gone missing or disappeared or was shot you know, badly and they can't reshoot. Um, has that ever happened to you where you had to really get creative um, with your cut in order to cover up something lost or damaged or not working? Um, well, you always have to, uh, oh, I'm sure, you know, something happened with the best take, so then you have to, you have to jerry-rig things. Uh, nothing that dramatic comes to mind as I was an assistant on a, on a film 
and they had it the person in the lab took the cut negative and they have these special cores that let them know where things are supposed to go or actually after that they designed the special cores he took the cut negative and ran it through the developer the high speed developer and he had just struck something called an interpositive because they had already I mean, so basically this technician in the lab almost destroyed an entire reel which at that point was now it's 20 minutes then it was probably 10 minutes of film so they had to jerry rig this newly struck interpositive and create that as the negative and it never quite worked out but that was uh that was pretty that was pretty intense but um you know you've got silly stories about when you uh somebody tears something just before you have a screening and you've got to try to patch it up and hope you know and pray that it's going to make it through the uh you know make it through the projector when you actually used to screen on film splices used to bump there is you know you forgot to take grease pencil off things like that but the type of problems have probably changed now that everything's digital yes. but still as <clears throat> stressful you know with whether it be an export or a render or what what have you well uh this um small film i was just helping out with uh the director was telling me that they had um there were a couple of times when they have to move so fast there is a technician on the set called the dit um who is supposed to check and make sure that what they filmed actually is there yeah. the information and if they're moving too fast or if the person isn't working properly or something they sometimes don't you know they can't find out in time and so what you know but that happened on film that would happen on film also you would cuz you wouldn't know until the next day on when you were shooting on film yeah so it'd be a 24 hour notice versus like right, on set right. Really and they'd have to pick up and go somewhere you know it's <laughs> uh it's like, it's gone <laughs> how often are you on set um you know being involved early on in the process versus someone just you know handing you a hard drive or kind of calling you random i feel like you're probably the type that can uh ebb and flow with whatever the workflow but do you prefer to be um involved earlier on so that you can be working with the director as it's being shot well most of the time i do start uh the the day of principal photography or a few days before obviously there are those other jobs where i i take it over afterwards or you know they want to recut it um but most of my experiences have been starting from the first day of shooting as to being on set if i'm on set i'm not cutting and yeah. you're always watching what they're filming and you're going oh my god I, you know i need to be cutting what i have there so that i can then cut this tomorrow um so there's always and also you don't as an editor you don't actually really have a job to do on set um everybody has an assigned task and so you oftentimes you get called down to just check and make sure if they're not really sure if they want to make sure they have all the coverage and before they leave the scene sometimes if you're on location and it's fairly convenient they'll they'll have that happen um every once in a while it's just because you really at the beginning of a show you want to go and really get to know the people because we don't watch dailies together anymore 
I grew up in a time when um, you would go to the lab each night and you would watch film together and you would get to know everybody. And it would be this collaborative process. Correct. Mm -hmm. And now it's kind of like, here's everybody. a posting, here's some emails, yeah. jump on it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you upload your, you know, they... They upload to a secure site, and then they download. You know, it used to be they would distribute DVDs. And now it's all online. And so. for that reason, do you have to, as an editor, um, cut faster because you don't have the same amount of time? Or mm, is it no, you have. It's the time element is the same. Whether or not you work on a movie that's sixty days shooting or thirty days shooting, it's all relative. You want to try to keep up to camera as much as possible, because you want to make sure that they have all the material that they need. You know, they don't want to strike a set until they make sure that you've cut it and they haven't missed anything, or you know, if there are technical problems that they might not know about or even if they do know about, they want to make sure that you have everything. So it's always, regardless of how many days uh, you have to shoot the movie, of course, which now is less and less because the budgets are going down except for the big, huge tentpole movies, um, is to try to cut as quickly as possible. So the big, huge temple movies like Pitch Perfect? Oh, not quite. <laughs> that <laughs> big, was, huge that was a big deal. Everybody was talking. That was a low budget about movie, that though. When it came out in theaters, I had uh -huh. all these people calling me. My mom was like, "We're going now. Let's do this." You know, I really feel uh, sad that I really feel Universal missed an opportunity. They didn't. They um, they marketed it for a very young audience and by not marketing it also in a different way to an older audience they really lost the opportunity to get a much bigger crowd of seeing it i'm sure it would have made over a hundred million dollars if they had done any kind of print ads they had done some commercials that were for um, an older audience because obviously all my relatives went to see it you know everybody yeah. Everybody loved it. It didn't matter what the age range was. Everybody just enjoyed being with those characters. The music was great. The dancing was great. The energy was great. It was, uh, it was really, really fun. But it was made for, I think the original budget was like $17, $18 million. Maybe with the finishing costs of the music, it might have been 20 But in today's world, that's not a, you know, a $100 million movie, whatever. It's, yeah, it's even though the, the actors in, within the movie are younger, it doesn't mean that that genre of film is not appreciated by people of all ages. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my mom's in her mid-50s, and if the movie even has, you know, one performance of a song, she's like, we're going, we're doing this. Uh -huh. um, oh. it's, that, it's that type of thing, um, which is... You know, even though they didn't market it to that audience, I still think it got it got there definitely. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> yeah. um, and they did an interesting thing. It was um, a tremendous number of screenings before the movie came out, and word of mouth on the internet. That was really what. Uh, and in today's world, this whole thing of preview uh, of trailers and how what a big huge deal they are. And the trailer was, you know, in the way they reviewed them, uh, 
<laughs> you know, reading about it in the Hollywood Reporter and the Huffington Post and obviously all these other sites that I don't, I don't get to, but I know that it was a pretty big deal, the trailer. Do you ever cut trailers? No. No. <laughs> I'm not a... My brain just doesn't work that way. I'm not a... Um, uh, you know, you have to, you know, you take one thing from the beginning of the scene and one thing at the end and you mesh it together and somehow it makes this perfect thing. I am fascinated by uh, people who can do it well. I just, I think it's amazing. Um, was it actually fun for you to cut Pitch Perfect? Oh, I God. feel like yes. there's just so much craziness going on. Was there any type of... Um, like improvisation going on with any of the footage or well you know the performances are uh yes my additional editor don broida who has he started out as my apprentice 10 years ago and has now graduated and he got a credit as an additional editor on pitch perfect he cut the audition sequence and um that had to be basically um uh, they shot the same, obviously the same song with each performer, and they were doing different, they each sang the song, and then they did their a cappella instrumentation versions of it, whether or not they were playing, uh, doing guitar or percussion or making those funny sounds, <laughs> things like that. And uh, that was all done in the editing room. Oh, wow. That was Jason Moore came up with the arrangement, um, and uh, and he and Don figured all that out. That was Don. I, I mean, there's uh, the idea of the boxes was based on um, there's a person and the name is escaping me. The guy who does these acapella things online. Uh, on YouTube all the time and then they had a contest afterwards okay. uh, and I think it's on the DVD and it was part of the promotion if you at home did one of the pieces of a song and then you could get yourself in the video and th with all those boxes kind of like the end of Love Actually they did something like that oh, cool. um, so it was no. so that was a truly improvisational thing obviously we had to make the first uh, number please don't stop the music was much much longer we had to really cut it down because it's the beginning of the movie and again like any film you've just got to get in there you people are not going to stop and wait for a five minute performance piece they're just really not you have to get the story going so with regard to <laughs> with regard to the story um in a lot of ways it's you know a fun light-hearted Mm -hmm. you know, musical. But then, once in a while, someone says something, like, really crazy or insulting or <laughs> racy, and it's just so quick, and you're, wait a minute, what was that? And it was, just, like, ridiculous and hilarious. Um, Are we talking about Fat Amy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fat Patricia. Uh -huh. um, right, Rebel. She was amazing. She was absolutely positively Amazing. Oh, Plus the dialogue, uh, you know, as written, was really incredible. Yeah, and I feel like just, she was the comic relief for sure. Well, but then it also she, percolated that, through the that, other characters. You know, um, uh, Anna Camp as Aubrey, if she was not tonally as perfect 
as she was, I actually think the movie would not have held together as much. Oh, wow. She, uh, I know she's, to me, she's sort of the unsung hero of the movie because Rebel, she's just incredibly funny. <laughs> but the thing is, is that the... Um, you, she had to believe hook, line, and sinker that everything depended on this competition, and she did it without being truly annoying. You know, those kinds of characters can really go over the top. And but there was something that she, as an, as the actress, brought so much to it, and how much she felt for it. And you know, Chloe, uh, Brittany as her sidekick, you know, how they really needed to make this group go on and how the competition was important, but ultimately loyalty and friendship and helping each other and working together was what came through. And if she, you know, I mean, people objected to the use of the vomit, but the thing is she involuntarily threw up at the beginning and at the end... She chose to do it. it. You know, it's actually a story arc. You know, I mean, it had to come to that. You know, it had to be. It didn't maybe, you know, it was a choice, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I thought it worked. <laughs> That's funny. It's, just, it's, it's interesting to see that combination, that you think you know what you're getting into mm-hmm. with a film, and then there's all these crazy directions that it takes um, that are, like, really ridiculous and, and crazy in your... yes. You know, wondering if it should be rated something different. Or well, I mean, we obviously <laughs> really went for a PG-13. I'm yeah. sure uh, we had a couple of the F words that we had to take out. It really wasn't. Uh, they always wanted it to be a PG-13. Um, and it's a real testament also to Jason, the director, because... Uh, Making those characters likable, that's really the the key in terms of that comes from casting, that comes from... Because it really could have gone to the point where you didn't like them. And I think even though they were character stereotypes somewhat, there was a three-dimensionality that was brought to them by the actors, who, all of whom I thought were really good. And Jason is just, he's not mean-spirited. You, know, you could have gone into a mean-spirited way a lot of films do it's something I detest I don't like watching it I don't like you know, it's just for me as soon as a film goes into that vein I'm like you lost me I don't like things but you know and people I think the other reason why the film was so successful is people really want to laugh they really do and I think that Jason did a good job I kind of read up about him he came from Broadway yes so it actually makes so much sense to have a director that um, directs on stage, directing for a film that mm-hmm. takes a, a lot of it taking place on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was interesting to read about him. Yeah, well, uh-huh. I don't know if you saw Avenue Q, but, I mean, they used puppets, and he made it work, and it's, uh, it was quite a unique thing, and um, he's... He's really, really talented. Brought a tremendous amount to the project. You've seen it, I assume. <laughs> She's snickering. You see that? <laughs> it's fantastic. It's amazing watching puppets be so vulgar. It's oh, I know. <laughs> oh, I know. It's no. Everybody's got to see that one. My uh-huh. took me. I love it. Oh yeah, you did. Hey, I'm a, like I'm a big Muppets fan. Uh, you know, like I have you look like it. Wait, so <laughs> did you say? Did you see Avenue Q? I did see it. My and, took me to see. I loved it. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's so incredibly yeah, I'm original. Not a, I'm not a stage play person. 
Oh. I don't like Broadway. I don't like the mm-hmm. having to throw out and overdo everything. But like I've seen two that I really liked: Avenue Q and Book of Mormon. So Avenue Q with the mm-hmm. It just works. Yeah. It works. Well, that's probably why they gave them the chance then. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I kind of uh, went online and dug deep into Lisa's career. Oh, yeah? And uh, <laughs> maybe saw something <laughs> about the three amigos. Oh. <laughs> and lost my mind. I was like, wait a minute. I was like yelling. I was like, I need to bring this up because... Everybody in the world loves this film, and I wanted to know what... If you're a certain age range, there are <laughs> people on. who... Well, that's why when I mentioned the, uh, you know, the Warriors, you're too young for the Warriors, but there is a certain age group, and especially guys, when they find out that I worked on the Warriors, they're like... They're like, oh, my God. Well, it was, you know, the movie actually came out and only played for two weeks because there was violence in it, and there was a spate of um, uh, people seeing the movie and then a couple of murders that happened in New York City right after that. Mm -hmm. So they pulled it after two weeks, but it had a tremendously, and still does have a tremendously long life on... um, uh, First it was on VHS. (laughs) No, it's, uh, you know... um, DVDs and the uh, and there are purists who only like the original version versus the version that Walter Hill was able to go back and and do his director's dream version, which added animation, which a lot of the purists are just like, no, the original one, that's it. But with Three Amigos, it's uh, <laughs> I actually had a fat burger this week and the last time I had a fat burger was when I was working on a Saturday and Randy Newman was in the cutting room on Three Amigos because it was Randy Newman and Steve Barton um, uh, and Lauren Michaels wrote that and um, and I had a fat burger with Randy Newman. That was the last time I had a fat burger, which was a long time ago because I can't remember when Three Amigos was, but it was a while ago. <laughs> That's funny that you'll always remember Uh the fat burger. Yes. Uh I also had, there was, um, uh, Randy Newman and Steve Martin were trying to convince Lauren Michaels that this one particular scene around the campfire was funny. And Lauren was, (laughs) Lauren was sitting in front of the cam and Randy and Steve were like acting it in addition to what they were showing Lauren on the, on the cam, they were trying to convince him because Lauren didn't think this thing was particularly funny. <laughs> so it was getting a uh, quite the thing. And, of course, what everybody says, if you meet Steve Martin, he's really very serious oh. in person. Oh, mm-hmm. I had no idea. Yes. He saves uh-huh. them all for the camera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got it. Um, the one film that kind of stands out for me um, that... It's kind of the black sheep would be priest. Ah, I mean that's up my alley. I love that stuff, but it just seems so out of place in in mm-hmm. everything else that you've done. And I was like, oh, she took. I was like, oh, she probably got badass one day and was just like, give me something <laughs> crazy with zombies in it or something. So what um, happened? Uh, vampires. Oh, vampires. Uh, yeah. Right, zombies are the other are the other choice. Today's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, I really wanted to do something against type. You get stereo. You know, you get really put in a niche. 
um, when you edit, oh, she does drama, she does comedies, she does action, she does, you know, and unfortunately it's mostly men who do the action in big visual effects movies. And I actually had the opportunity, they were, um, I was, again, it's economics, I was willing to cut my rate and a lot of the editors were not, and so I wanted to have the opportunity to work on a big visual effects movie so that uh, um, nobody could say she can't do visual effects. You know, it was had like over 800 visual effects. And um, I really like the director, Scott Stewart, and um, Paul Bettany is a really good actor, and I thought that uh, we could have a possibility of having a lot of fun doing it, which we did. I had an opportunity to uh, contribute in a lot of different ways. Oh, we had a scene in that film where um, it was actually some of the second unit was filmed so differently from principal photography that they had to go back and reshoot a scene. And I had the opportunity to work with the storyboard artists because they really wanted to spend as little as possible going back and reshooting. It was when um, the priestess, uh, when the motorcycles are coming towards her and she does all these big anti-gravity defying things. And they originally had a big, huge rig, uh, like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where people do all these things, but they weren't going to set it up again, so we had to figure out really nuts and bolts how we could do it. And the storyboard artist came into my room, and we said, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And he would draw a shot. What These are the shots that we need. We would scan it. We would put it into the Avid, and we would we created a scene, and then we would put it on my laptop, and we'd go to the set and show it to the director, and he'd go, okay, this is just, just like storyboarding something. So I had an opportunity to do that a few times. That was really, really fun. And actually put it in the sequence. Well, so yes, and then can... they went and shot it based on what we came up with in just through storyboards and, you know, cutting them together. That That's totally Well, you know, um, uh, action scenes in today's world, they call it previs. They, mm-hmm. you know, and they cut everything together. And I know on uh, the Oz movie, uh, Bob Murakowski, he was working on the previs for like three, four months before they started shooting. So, which makes a lot of sense because it's a lot of times they've just had visual effects people doing all the previs and coming up with all the angles and not including the editor. And now they're starting to realize that they need to include the editor in that early, early stage. So, um, and the thing that's, funny about working on a visual effects movie when you work on one that's really big. You have visual effects supervisors. You have a visual effects editor who's working in the room with you. You know, it's actually so much easier than when you're working on a movie that ends up having a lot of visual effects. It's just, but it's a lot of fun. It, you know, because there are that many more people. There's a, like a lot of collaboration when you look at the shots and then you come up with different ideas and what could be better. And then they, you know, you go a step further because you're, it's like, in the editing, you're rewriting dialogue and everything like that. But when you're reviewing visual effects, you're trying to, you know, everybody's trying to up it and make it even better all the time and come up with new ideas. So, so it was a, a good experience. Oh, it was a fantastic experience. I loved it. You got to do another one. You got to do like a zombie <laughs> one. That's an, right. That would be the next. Uh-huh. <laughs> aliens popping out of stomachs. That's a little that. <laughs> 
That movie scares me every single time. <laughs> okay, maybe not that one. Maybe not that one. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I think we're going to do the intro. Okay. Intro first. Outro? Outro? You have to do a thank you or whatever, and then we do the intro. Okay. I've never done the intro outro before, so this is going to oh. be interesting. Um, okay, so what do I say? Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming out. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so you gave us an inside look at um, a lot of our favorite movies, so thank you very much for coming by. Oh, you're welcome. Um, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks. <laughs> Anything that's like phony, I can't. I'm just like, huh. I'm not a spokesperson. Um, how do you pronounce your last name? Churgan. And I noticed that you had a middle name in the IMDb. Is that? That's my husband's last name. Okay. And um, it's such a cool name. I didn't get married until I was 39, so it's like, I'm not going to change my last name then. So, but it's such a cool name. Okay, cool. So, I, was, I wasn't sure if that you wanted me to mm-hmm. include that in the it's intro. Lisa Zeno Churgan. He will really like it. <laughs> he gets a really big kick out of seeing his name. Oh in print. yeah. Okay, well, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, and I'm saying in the cut. Yep. Welcome back to Craft Truck in the Cut. We're here with Mrs. Churkin. <laughs> <laughs> I brought out this part. Can you come do this part? No, no, no. It's gonna be a really awkward we can, cut. We can VFX my head. Surprise! If only if I, I do it with a wig on. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice. A curly wig. I know, I know. Hi, welcome back to Craft Truck in the Cut. Um, today we're here with Lisa Zeno. Oh, sorry, Zena. Churgan. Zeno. I said Zeno. Zena. I was like, oh, okay. We're here with the Warrior Princess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know. This is the hardest it's part. Literally just uh-huh. welcome back to Craft yeah. Truck in the Cut. Lisa Zeno Churgan, editor. That's it. Okay. Uh, All right. Gonna, we're going we're gonna to cut these things. Like, uh-huh. I know. I know. <laughs> to the bone. To the bone. To the bone. To the five, to the sinew. Uh-huh. The card's about to fall. Well, that's what okay. happens. That's what you say to your, uh, you know, your director. You think that you're actually, you know, you're, you've got it tight enough. You haven't cut bone yet. Cut it to the bone. Oh, yeah. They have to lose their babies. <laughs> <laughs> you have 90 seconds. Okay. 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 Um, welcome back to Craft Trek in the Cut. We're here with Lisa Zeno Shergan. Shergan. One more time. One more time. Welcome back to Craft Trek in the Cut. We're here with Lisa Zeno Shergan, um, Academy nominated editor. Excellent. And you're out. 